and one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he had answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no one, no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared ask him any more questions. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself, in the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. Hi, I'm Tyler Don Rosenquist, and welcome to Character in Context where I teach the historical and ancient sociological context of scripture with an eye to developing the character of the Messiah. If you prefer written material, I have five years worth of blog at theancientbridge.com, as well as my six books available on Amazon, including a four-volume curriculum series dedicated to teaching scriptural context in a way that even kids can understand it, called Context for Kids. And I have two video channels on YouTube with free Bible teachings for both adults and kids. You can find the link for those on my website. Past broadcasts of this program can be found at characterincontext.podbean.com and transcripts can be had for most broadcasts at theancientbridge.com. If you have kids, I also have a weekly broadcast where I teach them Bible context in a way that shows them why they can trust God and how he wants to have a relationship with them through the Messiah. All scripture this week comes courtesy of the ESV, the English Standard Version, but you can follow along with whatever Bible you want. A list of my resources can be found attached to the transcript for part two of this series at theancientbridge.com. All right, lest we err in, <clears throat> excuse me, um, yeah, allergies still. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> it's going to be months, folks, all right? And it rained last night, so... Yeah, this morning. Whew. Lest we err in thinking that everyone was out to get Yeshua, or you may call him Jesus, we have this scribe that uh, who's been watching the whole event and asks, gasp, you know, a genuine question. And this is a really big deal because, you know, up to this point... It can really seem as though Mark is painting every single educated Jew in a terribly negative light. But like in all eras, we tend to hear most from the troublemakers and the loudmouths. That's why I talk so much. <coughs> you know, the argumentative ones, right? They are the ones who make the headlines when they make up just a small percentage of people or, or any group. 
The people who are dazzled by Yeshua, they make up the overwhelming bulk of the Jews who have been portrayed up to this point. And they are the reason why the arrest has to be made in the middle of the night. Now remember, chapters 11 and 12 are to be seen as one unit. They happen one day after another, and the events of each day serve to interpret the events that came before and after. So we're going to review again. And I'm sorry if you've had to listen to this. What have I done it like five times now, just adding a little bit every time? But, you know, just in case, it's good to review. So day one... Um, and that is at the beginning of chapter 11 this week. We're in chapter 12, of course. Um, day one, beginning of chapter 11, the entry into Jerusalem, where Yeshua rides into town on a dedicated donkey's colt. And by dedicated, I mean it had never been used for anything before. So it's dedicated. All right. It goes into the temple, looks around, and promptly leaves. Um, these were both prophetic Actions hearkening back to what was expected when a king would return from battle. Um, he would be met outside by all the elders and powerful people of the city and actually everyone from the city who could, you know, get there in time. He'd be paraded into the city by everybody and would, he would top off the day with a visit to the temple and where he would make sacrifices because, uh, expressions of public piety were very important. In a triumph. So, uh, Yeshua only looked around and inspected the place, you know, which didn't bode well for what was going to happen next. Uh, they spent the night in Bethany, Yeshua and his disciples. Um, on day two, Yeshua is hungry and goes to a fig tree out of season, um, has no edible fruit on it, um, which is supposed to be a picture of him viewing the temple and finding, um, nothing fruitful the day before. Uh, and, and he declared judgment that no one would ever eat of this fig tree again. Then they went to the temple where Yeshua performed a prophetic act of judgment against the worldly and corrupt nature of what the temple had become. And he stayed to teach people afterward. They left again and spent the night in Bethany again. Day three. They got up and made their way to Jerusalem. They passed the same fig tree, which is now withered so badly that even the roots can be seen to be withered away. Yeshua looks toward the temple and tells his disciples that when they pray for the wickedness within the current temple to end, and that's what it means by the mountain tossed into the sea, that they do so with clean hearts full of forgiveness and not malice. Then they enter the temple where Yeshua's authority as, and the, the source of his authority to have disrupted the commerce within the temple the day before was challenged. Um, he refused to answer unless they admitted to their official position on whether or not John the Baptist's ministry was from God and therefore legitimate or from men and therefore illegitimate. You know, realizing that however they answer will spell disaster for them. With the people who are gathered there and hanging on every word, they tell him that they just don't know and are effectively silenced. They can't speak after that because they haven't answered well. Yeshua responds with a parable aimed directly at the um, 
the scribes, um, chief priests and elders, excuse me, my sinus is draining in. And I believe they were a dele delegation sent by the Sanhedrin, so they were official. Um, and, you know, this parable is telling them that they've been judged and condemned and that their rulership over God's people will be given to others, which we know historically to be Yeshua's disciples, uh, who will assume leadership after his death. They go off and plot as to how they can arrest him, and they send the Herodians and the Pharisees, who then try to trap him into infuriating either the crowds or the Romans. And, of course, he silences them both by portraying the Pharisees as hypocritical idolaters by their own standards when it comes to money. The Sadducees then come and try to trip him up by asking about the resurrection, which they do not believe in, and Yeshua proves the resurrection and God's faithfulness and shows them up as not understanding the only five books in the Bible that they accept as authoritative legally. They are, and by that I mean as to determining Torah observance, they are also silenced, you know, not to mention, you know, just they're, they've been intellectually body slammed. And all that is the context that leads up to this, this very interesting encounter in, um, Mark chapter 12, starting in verse 28. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment's the most important of all? So he's been in the crowd, the scribe, he's been in the crowd up to this point, watching everything that's been happening. He watched as they tried to lasso Yeshua into making a mistake, into looking like he was either inciting rebellion on one hand or collaborating with the Romans on the other hand. Uh, this scribe watched as Yeshua trapped the leadership of Israel in their own snares. He's gotten the best of everyone up to this point in this scribe. And remember, the scribes were the educated class of legal retainers of the day. They could read and write and worked for the um, upper classes, writing contracts, um, sometimes producing Torah scrolls and even teaching. You know, it all depended because there were scribes of all types and in all levels, okay? But this one was evidently quite learned, and he posed to Yeshua one of the common debates of the day. Which one of the 613 commandments is the most important? And it's no small question. We're just used to the answer. <laughs> yeah. um, although Yeshua settled the matter, you know, it's always important to understand that there's a hierarchy of commandments. Some are weightier than others. As Yeshua mentioned in Matthew 23, 23, when he says that tithing is good, but there are weightier matters, such as dealing with justice, uh, mercy, and faithfulness. Okay? Which would have been shorthand for those laws dealing with caring for the vulnerable and seeing that they get justice and they're cared for. Now, although I would never use any of my dreams to declare doctrine, I remember um, a few years back, I was in a situation with people whose language I did not speak. And this was in a dream. 
and there was no interpreter. And I knew if I did not eat the mystery meat in front of me that they would be insulted and I could never share the gospel with them. So Leviticus 11 got subjugated to the need to love these people and share the gospel. And I ate it and the results were good. I have no idea. what it was. I actually, that, that part of the dream wasn't even there. I was like one minute I was like, okay, I'm going to eat this. And the next minute, you know, we have community together. Now by showing them respect and accepting hospitality in the dream, which is a huge thing in two thirds of the world or, or more, they were willing to accept me. Um, I pray different tribal groups. I pray for different tribal groups in, um, China every night. And I remember one of the groups, they are way up in the mountains near Mongolia and they live on maggoty meat and fermented yak milk and they drink a lot of booze. If you can't sit down with them and eat it and drink it, you cannot preach to them. It's a cultural thing. We have to be more concerned with their souls and our own scruples. If Yeshua can die, then I suppose we can eat maggots, all right? I just pray that I never have to put that in action, okay? <laughs> I'm a wimpy American. Uh, uh, verse 29, Jesus answered, The most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. This, of course, is the Shema, which the Jews had been praying twice a day as formal prayer since at least the second century BCE. It's found in Deuteronomy 6, starting in verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And you might notice that Yeshua's virgin, version oh, adds the word mind into the mix. And this is an example and proof that the Bible is not a science book. When Deuteronomy was written, people believed that the brain was simply skull wadding and not good for anything. Even, you know, and this is really funny, okay? The Egyptians would preserve all the organs in those canopic jars instead of the brains, which they would... You know, they, they pull out through the nose and throw out. They only saved what they figured folks would need in the afterlife. So the next time you watch a mummy movie and they can't talk, this is why. No brains. <laughs> no. Uh, but in about 50 BCE, or maybe because there's no such thing as mummies, that could be it too. But in about 50, oh, sorry, 500, I wrote that down wrong, 500 BCE, the Greeks figured out that it was the brain and not the heart and the guts that were responsible for thinking and emotion. By this time, it was so deeply ingrained that certain things came out of the heart that it had become idiomatic, and it still is today. But Yeshua reflects this change of understanding in his audience. I mean, it's not like he didn't know stuff. Um... But, you know, we speak at the level of who we're speaking to, okay? 
we citing that we love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Pretty cool. God speaks to us where we are so that we can understand, not so that he could teach us science and we wouldn't understand his version of science. Anyway, and I say this as a chemist, all right? But the truth is, <sighs> kids today, and I, I graduated with my degree in chemistry 30 years ago, kids today are learning stuff that I didn't learn in chemistry. So, you know, it's crazy now. Oh, okay, sorry. Sorry, verse 31. Verse 31. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Now, there is nothing subversive or controversial about Yeshua's answer. In uh, the Babylonian Talmud, uh, Shabbat 31a, we see a similar answer from Hillel, who was born in uh, 110 BCE and reportedly died in 10 of the common era. Um, but who was in power for the last 40 of those years? And I say reportedly because it's not unheard of to exaggerate the lives, lifespans of the great sages as such to reflect the perfect number of years for life, 120. But Hillel and Shammai were both once asked to teach the Torah to a Gentile with mixed responses. All right, here it is. There was another incident involving one Gentile who came before Shammai and said to Shammai, Convert me on condition that you teach me the entire Torah while I am standing on one foot. Shammai pushed him away with the builder's cubit in his hand. This was a common measuring stick, and Shammai was a builder by trade. The same Gentile came before Hillel. He converted him and said to him, that is that which is hateful to you, do not do to another. That is the entire Torah, and the rest is only its interpretation. Go study. But the answer goes deeper than we realize. It is no small commandment to love neighbor as self. In fact, we can see from the Bible that it is impossible without the new creation life that Yeshua gives, and even then we do a pretty pathetic job of it. But although Moses would often give laws that made allowances for hard-heartedness, as we discussed with divorce, and we will also see with slavery and warfare and some other things, Yeshua never does that. Yeshua always begins and ends with our creation purposes and calls us to faithfulness to that standard. That's why the Sermon on the Mount is so uncomfortable to read and why we jump up and make exceptions when we read it. We don't want to live kingdom lives in this world. We want to have some very beastly allowances at our disposal so that we don't have to love neighbor as self and carry those crossbeams. Verse 32. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no other beside him. Now, this is the first respectful and genuine address he's gotten from someone educated since arriving in Jerusalem. The crowd, as he came into the city on the donkey's colt, was singing his praises, but he was absolutely snubbed by everyone who had the authority to make him welcome in Jerusalem. When he has been complimented, um, as he has been by the Pharisees and Herodians, it's always a ploy to knock him off balance and compromise him. But this scribe gives credit where credit is due and proves that he's an honest man. 
He also addressed him formally as teacher after getting the answer, which is no small thing coming from an educated man who was probably of a high, higher social caste than Yeshua, almost certainly. Yeshua came from, um, you know, very humble means. Uh, verse 33. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Now, excuse me for saying so, but this coming on the heels of the previous day of Yeshua disrupting commerce in the temple and the brouhaha all day with the delegation challenging his authority in judging the temple and the temple administration, this sounds like this scribe is agreeing that he had the authority to do exactly what he did the day before. Now, it was not unheard of for first century Jews to see the corruption of the high priestly family, given their collaboration with the Romans, you know, as a condemnation of the temple. The Essenes were particularly disgusted. And we have spoken previously about the allegations from second temple era writers that the priests were consorting with prostitutes. However, this is probably metaphorical for describing the condition of the time with that of Hophni and Phineas, the sons of Eli, who served um, just before the destruction of the site at Shiloh. That's We can find that in uh, 1 Samuel. Or it could be true because those Sadducees, as we discussed last week, didn't believe in any final judgment. But, you know, I, I have trouble believing that they were that bad because they did, as I said, they did accept um, the Torah. They just were really lax with how they, yeah. And, but that's a big transgression. <laughs> Adultery, okay? Um, and Yeshua isn't just saying here that to love God and neighbor is better than sacrificing an animal. And, and the scribe isn't saying it either. You know, he's saying it's greater than all the offerings and sacrifices. Just, you know, wow. Much more, he says. He knows that the temple cannot fulfill either of those commandments and that our hearts towards God and one another have to be right. And of course, the Torah would agree that sacrifices are nothing without obedience and love. But it's easy to lose sight of that and descend into, you know, the rote rituals that we keep going back to, you know, as they were spoken about in Malachi. Sacrifice, which is how we translated korban, which is a word meaning to draw close. You know, uh, Yeshua is how we draw close now. He is worth more than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. You know, through his love and death, he made it possible for us to truly obey God and keep his commandments to love him and one another. That's why the Sermon on the Mount never tells us what we can get away with like the laws given through Moses do. Yeshua tells us God's intentions, original creational intentions, and not the allowances made for our hardened hearts. And it's just, it's 
so incredibly important. Uh, Proverbs 21.3 To do righteousness and justice is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. 1 Samuel 15.22 And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. And we're about to come up on the uh, on the break here. But that was, uh, as I recall, that was in response to um, Saul um, disobeying. And he was making the sacrifices himself when um, Samuel said, wait for me, you know, after, you know, after the battle. And, and he, he let Agog, the uh, leader of the Amalekites, go free. Anyway, I'll be back in a few minutes. Rosenquist, and welcome to the second half of this week's Character in Context. We're talking about, what are we talking about? We're talking about, uh, we're up on the Temple Mount, talking about the question about the greatest commandment. We're going to get into the Son of David controversy. And uh, we were just, I was just uh, going through a few Bible verses where, that back up what the scribe was saying, that... um, that obedience and and loving God, loving one's neighbor are greater than all sacrifices. And I've got two more here. I've covered one from Proverbs, one from 1 Samuel. Now I'm going to go to Jeremiah 7, verse 22. For in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt, I did not speak to your fathers or command them concerning burnt offerings and sacrifices. But this command I gave them, Obey my voice, and I will be your God, and you shall be my people. And walk in the way that I command you, that it may be well with you. Um, You know, that was spoken during an era where people were putting their faith in doing the ritual stuff, but they weren't really interested in clinging to Yahweh and obeying him. Um, Hosea 6.6 For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. I mean, if if you think about it, it's completely logical. The sin sacrifices, well, the the, the chatat and the the asham sacrifices, you know, not so much the chatat, but the asham sacrifices were after you'd failed. And it's like, he doesn't want that. He wants us to, you know, do it right. <laughs> do it good the first time. And it wasn't for small sins either. It was for the big stuff. Hatat was usually just for cleansing, which has nothing to do with sin. All right. So these verses, the last four that I gave, are all in agreement with this anonymous scribe. But Simon the Just, a high priest who lived 300 years before Yeshua, had this to say according to the Mishnah. As recorded in Mishnah Avot 1.2, Shimon the Righteous was one of the last men of the Great Assembly. He used to say, the world stands upon three things, the Torah, the temple service, and the practice of acts of piety. 
Now, if Yeshua were to rewrite this list, I think he would probably say, if you would just do right, the Torah and the temple would be irrelevant as the first only exists to keep you from acting like brutes and the second is the place you go when you fail to not act like a brute. I mean, I know they did more at the temple than this, but the temple's overwhelming focus foci were atonement and worship. If we would just obey and live sacrificially, Yahweh makes it clear that there can be no greater act of worship. We like laws, though, because we can mess with them and do the minimum and feel good about ourselves, but the kingdom is not like that. Verse 34, And when Jesus saw that he, the scribe, had answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Yeshua was very impressed with the wisdom of the scribe's answer, but still falls short of giving him a golden ticket to the world to come. You're almost there, he says, but he doesn't elaborate on it. Indeed, he can't until after the resurrection. The final step into the kingdom is allegiance to Yeshua as God's chosen Messiah and King. But again, we see that now everyone's silenced. The scribe has stepped in and honored Yeshua. In fact, giving voice to the fact that he has now bested all of the leadership and on the Temple Mount right before the Passover. Do you remember that I said Yeshua would be slowly gaining mastery over the Temple Mount and replacing the authority and supremacy of the Temple and the Temple administration? Well, it's almost a done deal now. No one can stand up to his wisdom. No one can outsmart him. No one can humiliate him and come out on top. And yet he doesn't retaliate the way they or we would. Okay? I mean, they're going to plot to kill him. They will also succeed, even though it will take an unthinkable act of collaborating with Rome in order to do it. You know, this is why I love teaching about understanding honor and shame culture, but would never want to live in one, and I don't endorse them. This one-upsmanship and the obsession with status is, you know, it can be deadly. Uh, verse 35, And as Jesus taught in the temple, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? And now... He's done answering question and goes on the offensive with a question of his own. Yeshua is teaching now, it says, in the court of the Gentiles and perhaps in the area known as Solomon's Porch, which was a gorgeous colonnade along the eastern side of the Temple Mount. And I will provide a link in the transcript so you can see um, an artist rendering of what they think it might have looked like. Now, son of David as a messianic title first shows up in the Psalms of Solomon, which is obviously not in the Bible. And we discussed this back when we talked about the healing of blind Bartimaeus, who called Yeshua son of David as he passed by. And Yeshua didn't correct him. So obviously he had no problem with it. Note that he isn't debating that the Messiah is the son of David. He's merely challenging them as to how they can say he is. And it's going to become clear that what he is really asking is, 
how can the scribes say that the Christ is merely the son of David? Big difference. Uh, Psalms of Solomon 17 verses 21 through 25. See, Lord, and raise up for them their king, the son of David, to rule over Israel, your servant, in the time which you choose, O God. Undergird him with the strength to destroy the unrighteous rulers, to cleanse Jerusalem from Gentiles who trample her to destruction, to drive out in wisdom and in righteousness the sinners from the inheritance, to crash the arrogance of sinners like a potter's jar, to smash all their substance with an iron rod, to destroy the lawless nations with the word of his mouth, to make the nations flee from his presence at his threat, and to put sinners to shame by the word of their heart. 4Q Florigellium, uh, verses 1 through 13. It's a messianic commentary on 2 Samuel 7 and Amos 9.11. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that he will make you a house and that I will raise up your offspring after you and establish the throne of your kingdom forever. I will be a father to him and he will be my son. Now, this passage refers to the shoot of David, who is to rise with the interpreter of the law and who will arise in Zion in in the last days, as it was written, and I shall raise up the booth of David that is fallen. This passage describes the fallen branch of David, whom he shall raise up to deliver Israel. Of course, this is one of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Florigellium is a word that means a collection of manuscripts. Uh, Babylonian Talmud, Sanhedrin, um, 96b to 97a. Rav Nachman said to Rabbi Yitzhak, Have you heard when the sons of the giants, Bar Nifle, will come? Rabbi Yitzhak said to him, Who is the son of giants? Rav Nachman said to him, He is the Messiah. Rabbi Yitzhak asked him, Do you call the Messiah son of giants? Rav Nachman said to him, Yes, as it is written, On that day I will establish the tabernacle of David that is fallen. Um, And that's from Amos 9.11. That is why the Messiah is called Barnifli. Um, Rabbi Yitzhak said to him that this is what Rabbi Yohanan says during the generation in which the Messiah, the son of David, comes. Torah scholars decrease, and as for the rest of the people, their eyes fail with sorrow and grief, and troubles increase, and the harsh decrees will be introduced before the first passes, and the, the second quickly comes. Um, again, from Babylonian Talmud Sanhedrin, uh, this time 98a. Rabbi Hanina says the son of David will not come until a fish will be sought for an ill person and will not be found. As it is stated with the downfall of Egypt, then I will make their waters clear and cause their rivers to run like oil. Uh, that's Ezekiel 32:14, meaning that the current in the rivers will come to a virtual standstill. And it is written thereafter, on that day I will cause the glory of the house of Israel to flourish. That's Ezekiel 29, verse 21. Um, and there's more on the son of David. Um, at uh, I got this off of safaria.org. 
Yeah, that's a good uh, website for translations of uh, if you don't have it um, in digital form otherwise. And I have that um, I have that link in the transcript. Uh, Florigelium and the Psalms of Solomon were both written before Yeshua and the Gemara on Tractate Sanhedrin hundreds of years later. But cites Rabbi Yitzhak, who lived uh, only a hundred years after Yeshua. Rabbi Hanina uh, lived in the fourth century of the Common Era. All describe Messiah as the son of David, the branch, the one who will raise back up the booth of his father David. So this is definitely something that the scribes would have been teaching, talking about, and debating. And they taught this based on the scriptures from which they derived the doctrine of the Messiah and the Messianic Age. We tend to take all this for granted in retrospect, but these guys who, these are the guys who saw this stuff in the first place. All right. Isaiah 9 verses 1 through 7. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Neptali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of this burden and the staff for his, for, uh, his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as in the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle, tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulder, and his name shall be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Oh, I talk about the branch ones too here. Isaiah 11 verses 1 through 9. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide, decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with, with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf with the lion and the fatted calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, the young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, 
for the earth shall be full of knowledge of the Lord as waters cover the sea. Uh, Jeremiah 23, 5-6 Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. <coughs> and this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Ezekiel chapter 34, verses 23 through 24. And I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord. I have spoken. Uh, Ezekiel 37, verses 24, to, uh, 24 through 25. My servant David shall be king over them, and they shall have one shepherd. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. They shall dwell in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob, where your fathers lived. They and their children, and their children's children shall dwell there forever. And David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. Uh, Amos 9.11, and um, we actually referred to this in one of the, in the, um, in in the Babylonian Talmud earlier, they had a comment. Oh, no. Was that it? Or was it the Florigelium? I can't remember. In that day, I will raise up the booth of David that is fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. What is this? All the nations who are called by my name. Okay, Psalms 2, Psalms 89, 110, 132, also alluded to a coming Messiah, the son of David. Um, and speaking of Psalm 110, Yeshua is going to directly quote from it um, in the next verse. Next verse says, uh, this is 36 and 37 of uh, chapter 12. David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. I'll tell you something. <laughs> we never change. There's something very satisfying in all generation when religious know-it-alls get their rear ends handed to them by somebody who whom they want everyone else to. Well, they want to kill for one thing, and they want, but they're trying to undermine. Okay. Now, this is particularly damning, and it's not. Not damning, but you know what I mean. It's damning to the idea that the Messiah is merely one of David's offspring. David, the source of God's chosen kingly line, you know, how could there be a greater king than David to whom David would bow down and pay homage to? Because, you know, that's what we're saying here. 
In plainer English, we would read, Yahweh said to my master, sit as my most trusted associate in the most honored position in the kingdom of heaven over all the angelic beings until I make your enemies your footstool, bringing all things and people under your reign in absolute submission slash subjection to you. Well, David never dreamed of that kind of glory. And his enemies were never under his feet entirely. He actually had Solomon execute some of his enemies after his death just to wipe the proverbial slate clean because he promised not to do it. <laughs> but it gave him the last word and a final revenge. But here, Yahweh's saying that the Messiah will not have to lift a finger against his own enemies because Yahweh himself will subdue them. So, in essence, Yeshua's asking, why are you looking for a mere mortal? Which of David's sons ever surpassed him in accomplishments or righteousness so that they would deserve to be called his master? And considering David's checkered history of doing some serious injustice, that's a disturbing observation. Who on earth that is born of a woman, can David possibly look up to? I mean, other than Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Moses, you know, the big kahunas, but they went before him. But people didn't go around exalting themselves over their ancestors, and fathers did not exalt sons over themselves. That's like the total opposite of honor-shame dynamics. A son doesn't detract from the honor of his father. He adds to it. Well, I mean, doesn't do it on purpose anyway, okay? So, you, say you're Joe Blow, all right? And your son gets elected president. I mean, in our culture, does anyone know President Biden or former President Trump's dads? No. Does anyone even care? Not really. Not unless they're digging for dirt or, you know, wanting propaganda stuff for their, you know, slogans and everything. We just don't have that kind of culture where we do that sort of thing anymore. But in the ancient world, no matter how much you accomplished, you were still son of... <laughs> I'm not going there. Okay. <laughs> and so I shouldn't have said that. And so Bartimaeus called Yeshua son of David right before they entered Jerusalem. And Yeshua accepted it, but now he is upping the stakes. And really, it dazzles the crowd, but it also makes the leadership want him arrested and more than arrested. It wants him dead even more. They know exactly what he's claiming, even though, you know, he's not going to come right out and say it. He is more than a son of David, more even than the son of David, as they had ever conceived him to be. And the great throng for whom this, uh, some of this undoubtedly went right over their head. As far as the grander implications go, you know, they just want more. They know the leadership is, is, um, getting schooled. They, they enjoy that. Um, but the leadership will not be speaking directly to him again until his mock, you know, illegal trial. You know, he's just a bigger Messiah than they were expecting. 
He's a bigger messiah than they were wanting. Um, he isn't going to simply restore the Davidic kingdom. All right, that's too limited a goal. That's that's really small. He's going for worldwide domination, but not through warfare. The blood spilled will be his own and that of his own followers. He's not the nationalistic messiah of their hopes and dreams. He's he's bigger and he's better. It's, you know, is it no, no wonder that Yeshua shows up in Revelation with blood-soaked robes before the battle? And, and with the double-edged sword of his mouth slaying his enemies through his words? But, but the leadership didn't recognize Elijah when he came in the person of John the Baptist. And so there's no way they're going to recognize this kind of son, the son of David, you know, the Messiah in the person of Yeshua, who is as non-militaristic and as unambitious as they come, who even tells his own young disciples to be servants instead of looking to be served. He um, heals and he feeds and delivers Gentiles for crying out loud. He even talks to Samaritans, Samaritan women even, and has women disciples. He eats with sinners and collaborators and doesn't know, uh, he doesn't bow down to the respectable leadership. If this guy is the Messiah, they had to be thinking there was no place for their way of life. That of wealth, status, ambition, and revenge. You know, in this kingdom he's talking about, no way are they going to be give up their way of life on behalf of even their own people, much less the Gentiles this guy is friendly with. You know, so, yeah, worlds are colliding. Next week we'll finish off uh, Mark chapter 12 with the scribes and the widow's might. See you then.